Episode 3, Hashtag Mami Mania. Hey everyone, this is Diana, accompanied by my colleagues Liesel, Albert and Lily, and we're here to talk to you all about mummies. You may be wondering who we are and how we are qualified to talk about this topic. The four of us are students at UCLA, currently taking a class on Egyptology, and have been invited to publicize information we have learned throughout the quarter with the intention of increasing public knowledge about Egypt. Hi everyone, this is Albert. I'm here to talk to you about the purpose. The intent of this podcast is to evaluate how the perception of mummies has changed throughout time, including how information about mummies has been misappropriated. Specifically, how a lot of cultural information is either outdated or has been altered in some way. We want to stress the importance of pointing out biases in our sources, but also within our own ways of thinking. Hey guys, we're here at UCLA's Special Collections Department to look at Unwrap the Mummy by David Hawcock and Ian Dix. Basically, it's a four-foot-long pop-up book with a bunch of cool facts. And we're going to quiz our friends with a Do You Know style quiz to see if they have any popular misconceptions or misappropriations or even stereotypes about Egypt. So, Liesl and Diana, what do you think? <laughs> I'm not sure how accurate this interpretation is. Right now it seems kind of cartoonish, right? Yeah, I agree with you, definitely. It's. It's hard to tell because we haven't actually delved into like any of the reading. Like it has little text boxes along with like illustrations, but I would like to know how accurate this is because so far the even like the illustrations don't look similar to the ancient Egyptian um, tomb paintings. Okay, guys, let's start our quiz. Lily, why don't you start us off with the first question? Alright, so during the 1700s, what did many Europeans use mummies for? They probably used them for medical properties? Yes. That's actually really interesting. Um, During the 1700s, at least in Europe, um, using them for medicinal purposes wasn't as popular anymore. Um, And they began using them as fertilizer. Oh, and I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I actually didn't. Okay. Let's do question number two. Why was the Eye of Horus painted on the side of the coffin? I'm looking at you, Liesl. That's your part. I have no idea. Maybe because it was meant to see the true identity of the mummy, right? That's pretty close. Uh, but it's because uh, it's for the, it's so that the mummies could see outside the coffin. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's crazy. Okay. Next question. So, name some of the steps that are involved in the mummification process. I'll do two, and you have to do the rest. <laughs> okay. Um, the first would be to wash the body, right, and cleanse the body. And then they would have to treat it with the natron um, salt. 
And then I guess they'll have to, um, they would have to get out all of the insides, including the brain. And then they would probably finish up by wrapping the mummy with the linen. With the linen, yeah. Okay, so there's actually quite a few steps to the embalming process. So let's look at the book to see the answer. So it says first, to make a mummy, the brain was first scooped out through the nose with a brain hook. Then the internal organs were removed through a cut in the side of the body. The body was covered in natron, a salty substance, and left for 40 days to dry out. You got it. When the body was embalmed or dried, it looked limped and lifeless. So the body was packed with sawdust to make it look more lifelike. The body was then bathed in wine and spices, wrapped in linen bandages, and left for 30 days. A lifelike mask was placed over the mummy's face. Finally, the mummy was returned to its relatives for burial. Wow, that's cool! Wow, that's... I'm impressed. So, the use of this hook, what, what exactly, does it actually remove the entire brain from the mummy? Is that what I'm getting from this? No, it, it removes most of the brain and then they use a spoon to like remove like the pieces inside that's like left, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> kind of gross. <laughs> okay, last question everybody. Do you want to do this one? No, you can do this. Okay, why was the Book of the Dead buried with the dead? Because they're dead. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. So then, like everything else, objects buried with mermaids have a purpose. And in this case, it was to guide the death to the afterlife. Or okay. through the afterlife. That's interesting. Now we're just going to have a quick look through the book. So what's under the wrappings of the head? Sorry, it's taking a while. All right, there we go. Oh, wow. So reactions? Is that a skeleton? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, I never picture mummies with like the actual skeleton inside. I don't know. I, that's just... Yeah, you know sometimes in movies, they're just p- portrayed as... Um... It's interesting that you brought up movies, Diana. Do you have any misconceptions that might have ha- led you to perceive mummies in a certain way? Yeah, um, Albert, actually, um, I've always loved the mummy saga, and I feel like um, often in the movies, mummies are portrayed in this evil way, so I feel like that cultural misinterpretation has resulted in like a lot of um, disrespect towards the mummies, and um, I know that a lot of children, like, nowadays try to dress up for Halloween and they pick a mummy costume and I know that uh, I've heard that a lot of Egyptians actually find it very disrespectful to their culture. So basically what you're saying is that modern media has created bias within all age groups and particularly you felt like it's led people to become disrespectful towards the cultural aspects of yeah, oh definitely, yeah. I, I, I think that's, that, that's the idea nowadays. I agree with you, Diana. From the research that I was doing on the origins of mummies and how it all started, definitely this, this new 
I guess, modern way of looking at mummies is way too different from what they intended it to me to be. These burials were usually very differentiated in like the wealth of the mummy, but at the end of the day, they were all intended for the purpose of helping these individuals succeed in the afterlife. And that's seem, that seems to be left out in these Hollywood movies of mummies. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us at Special Collections. As we wrap up, we just want you to think about the popular misconceptions and biases that we've been talking about and how it relates to the overall theme of the podcast. Now let's head over to the TA interview to continue our conversation about mummies. Hi everyone, it's Lisol here with my friends Diana and Albert. My colleagues will be working a little more behind the scenes for this segment, but they're still here and you might hear their reactions in our audio. Today we also have the pleasure to have one more person with us. Jordan, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you guys for having me today. Um, So I'm a third year PhD student um, here at UCLA in the Near Eastern Languages and Cultures Department, focusing in Egyptology. Um, So right now I'm pre kind of dissertation stuff, but I'll be doing that this summer. And kind of my research focuses on elite competition, um, evidence through dress. So I do a lot of stuff with textiles, um, looking at how the socio-political climate um, changed with fashion and stuff like this. Um, What else about me? Originally, I did my bachelor's in Philadelphia at Temple University, and then I got my master's from the University of Chicago, so hopping my way across the country. And in your specific area of research, is there like any time period you focus on, or is it all very broad? Um, So I'm kind of more focusing Middle Kingdom through End of the New Kingdom Okay. Um, right now, because I'm trying to chart kind of changes, so you need to kind of get a a long expanse of time just to chart changes, you know? so yeah, just keep it somewhat broad, but not too broad because yes. it has to keep, you know, keep be bounded somehow. Has pursuing it like changed you as an individual? For sure. How? <laughs> um, I mean it's a really tough process. So it's it makes you very resilient, right? Because right. there's a lot of um setbacks along the way. It's a it's a hard process, a lot of struggles. You don't get into a lot of programs, they're very competitive, mm-hmm. things like this. Um, long hours, not a lot of time off for like fun um so it really a lot of times you question yourself (laughs) why am i doing this (laughs) putting myself through all this torture but then you know it's your passion your interest so exactly okay it comes back to you um in the classroom we've talked about orientalism Mm -hmm. and other topics that have enlightened us and we're just wondering if any of those topics like have touched on you in similar ways oh for sure yeah, I remember I took, so when I was an undergrad, I took a class on Orientalism in my undergrad, okay. and I like didn't know anything about it That's interesting. back then, yeah. um, and I remember being like, whoa, like, this is crazy, because I just didn't know kind of that concept existed at all, Yeah. Um, so then it was, I think, I think everyone should know about it, especially when you work studying the past in cultures, you know, that non-Western cultures, I think it's important to know kind of all the biases we have, and especially like reading literature from right. scholars from the past. They're very biased and yeah. I'm currently writing an article right now about how kind of Orientalism affected. So there's a bunch of um, depictions and actual bodies of women who are who have tattoos right. um, and figurines that are tattooed and nude and all the early excavators were like, oh these must be concubines, mm. 
prostitutes or something ridiculous and so my article is kind of pushing back against mm -hmm. this and that you know they were biased by their kind of Victorian yeah um, views you know European views of how what they how they view tattooing how they view nudity and we yeah. should put these onto the past because yeah. to look at the actual evidence yeah for sure okay now we'll move on to some questions about ancient Egypt if that's okay sure so our first question would be if you have like any more like evidence because we've been researching but do you have any more input about how the ancient Egyptians used to bury their dead before the process of mummification began sure um, so before mummification uh, the ancient Egyptians would have just buried um, the dead in a simple uh, dugout tomb a tomb or just you know a, a hole in the ground mm -hmm. um, the body perhaps wrapped in a piece of cloth or in like a reed matting or something like this um, or just nothing and just placed in the ground and then the, it would have been probably naturally mummified by the dry air um, right. from you know so dry air hot. in yeah. the sand and stuff yeah so and we have I pulled this one so this is kind of what they look like um, so very just kind of in a fetal position um, mm -hmm. with some grave goods around it um, what type of materials would they be buried with? So, you know, ceramics, so some pottery, um, maybe some basic jewelry. This guy looks like he has some, maybe some weapons, um, hunting implements. Um, he has sandals. These are of a later date, though, that they were put in there by accident. Right. Um, but so great, you know, things that perhaps you would want in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, and depending, I guess, how rich you are, you'd have more gray goods versus if you're um, lower status you'd have left. Did, did for example, statues have anything, anything to do with the introduction of like linens and resins into the process? We have read, mm. like, I think it was Christina Riggs' mm -hmm. Unwrapping Unwrap okay. Egypt. Yeah, you have it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, she had mentioned something about statues and we were just wondering what was the relevancy, like why did she mention them in yeah. that book? Um, so her book, it's a great book. And so she was focusing on kind of the the act of wrapping right. and how you could, her argument is that basically by wrapping something, you're imbuing it with something with being sacred, right? Mm -hmm. So that the act of wrapping makes something sacred. So she was connecting that to mummifying a body, right. that by wrapping the body, you're making the body sacred to turn into an Osiris in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And then they also would wrap statues, right? So okay. all of the statues that would be in the temples, in, um, you know, back in the Holy of Holies, in the back of the temple, mm -hmm. they would have, every morning, they would have went through a ritual where the priests would bathe the statue and then clothe it. Okay. So, and they would be wrapped and the act of wrapping. Like a mummy. Yeah, would imbue it with this kind of sacred power. And you can even see here, like, this is Tut's tomb. And so, like, all the stuff in his tomb is wrapped. But when, you know, archaeologists find it, they unwrap it because they're like, ew, yeah, a gross right. piece of linen. We want to see the gold underneath. But actually, everything would have been draped and wrapped. Exactly. Because you can't, like, an average person shouldn't be seeing the god, right? And that it's, goes... It's keeping this liminal mm -hmm. space between the god and the observer. And, like, even Tut's... Um, sarcophagi were draped in like a shroud and stuff like this so those are things we hadn't heard of yeah. actually so it's kind of I think the linen being a 
a marking off, like a boundary almost, between you know the living and the dead, the sacred and the profane, these types of things, and making whatever it's wrapping more sacred. Right. Yeah. So now that we've covered some basic information, we wanted to get to the purpose of our podcast. So we found that there are a lot of misconceptions incorporated in Egyptian culture throughout time. Would you be able to elaborate on that specifically regarding mummies? Sure, yeah. I think when we, you know, in the in the media and stuff, we watch certain movies and mummies are always shown as kind of like a monster, right? Rising from the dead. There's a pharaoh's curse coming to haunt the people that open the tomb and all this type mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, but I think it, it, this is making you know the Egyptians like mist, it's mystifying them and mm-hmm. making them like this. But if you go back to why the Egyptians mummified their dead, it's just they wanted to preserve their bodies for their afterlife. So that because of their belief, um, you needed the body to be preserved mm-hmm. so your soul and stuff could find it in the afterlife. Um, so I think it just touches upon the fact that it's like what our what we all want nowadays, you know, um, you want a peaceful afterlife if you believe in that. Mm-hmm. And so I think the best way to kind of combat such kind of ideas from the media, um, I think it's doing things like this, right? Mm-hmm. Teaching undergrads, having classes, um, getting involved with kind of social media type stuff um, to show how normal right. and everyday the Egyptians were too. Um, and I mean, making this stuff more accessible to everyone. Like you read an academic paper and it's super right. wordy yeah. and has all these big words and it's super inaccessible to most people using Egyptian language that no one else can read. Right. Um, things like this, but then trying to make it accessible to everyone and um, kind of pushing back against all like the TV shows that are out there, right? Mm-hmm. Like Ancient Aliens and all that stuff that's terrible. Would I'm sorry, would yeah. you say that there's any accuracies though, like in in your time as an Egyptologist and how you can view these things? Like, do you find that you can dissect them and perhaps find some truth in there? Um, so like I love the old like Brendan Fraser mummy movies. Okay. Like I totally still very much enjoy them. I think they're great. I remember mm-hmm. watching them when I was a kid and like part of that being why I was interested. Um, so I think it's great to get people interested in stuff. Right. And like I very much encourage it. Um, but then, you know, take that interest and then go mm-hmm. to the library right. and find a book and learn more. Like I have students all the time email me questions like I was watching the mummy and is this real or is this accurate and like I'm more than happy to answer that question like reach out to an expert or a book and learn more you know so it's like I think it's there's definitely a place for this stuff in the popular media Mm -hmm. because it gets people interested um so like I guess in a way you need a little bit of you know sensationalism to make it sexy (laughs) um but then take that interest and you know go look at scholarly resources right, right. And, and verify this stuff um, and recent and recent <laughs> stuff yeah don't look at like the 1800s because right. we'll be racist <laughs> so if you had one big takeaway from this conversation or just any dialogue regarding ancient egypt what would it be so i think my biggest kind of piece of advice for doing any type of research on ancient history in general and specifically for ancient egypt is to kind of I mean, do what you guys are doing, right? Be inquisitive and be um, interrogate the past, right? Interrogate mm-hmm. our sources and be 
um, judgmental and critical and don't just take things as they are, look at who was writing it when, what culture they came from, what biases they have, all these Mm -hmm. types of things are super important and we always need to be pushing back against these to actually get to, you know, the truth and try to um, really get at what the ancient people were thinking and um, not be, you know, skewed by our current interpretations, our current climate and all this type of stuff, Mm -hmm. yeah, and try not to bring that into into things and be more inclusive of, you know, other cultures and focus maybe more on women and um, people of color and all this type of stuff and topics that aren't usually discussed within ancient history. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. Yeah, thank you guys this for is where me. we'll close our interview with you, but we're really happy that you got the chance to come in and talk to thank us you today. It was great. A special thanks again to Jordan as we transition into the next part of our podcast where we talk about how the ancient Egyptians may have wanted us to perceive their culture. In order to talk about mummies through time, we must first cover what early Egyptians intended to achieve with this process. When we think about mummies, we think about the dead, sarcophagi, and riches, but let's start with one of the most obvious parts, linen wrappings. Many of us, including myself, have the misconception that linen wrappings were used only for preservation, but what if I told you that this is a misconception shattered by contents found within pre-dynastic tombs? You may be wondering what pre-dynastic even means. The term pre-dynastic refers to the time before the ruling families of ancient Egypt took possession of power, and dynastic Egypt refers to the time from about 2950 BC to 322 BC. This time period was when the last of the ruling families or dynasties ruled. Keeping these terms in mind, there are similarities in pre-dynastic and dynastic tombs in that they both show a focus on wealth and status. As most of us know, the pyramids and tombs we associate with ancient Egypt were the final resting places of some of the most wealthy and influential nobles and pharaohs. Similarly, archaeological evidence from one of the religious and political capitals of prehistoric Egypt, Hierakonopolis, highlights how wealth and social class influenced the size of burial pits and goods found within them. For reference, this was probably around 5th or 4th millennium BCE. Let's take it back to Jordan to get another perspective on this. I'm glad you brought that up because we we have been intrigued. Like, why only the royal family? Mm-hmm. Why only them getting, like, all these goods buried yeah. with them and getting, more often than not, they're the ones that are being buried in a way that actually um, has a tomb that's more elaborate mm-hmm. than the other classes. Yeah. I think it just goes back to money, right? Mm-hmm. So the king and his family would have had the most access and wealth. Um, so they would have had all the access to the workshops that are making all of these fine goods. Thanks, Jordan. Speaking of manufactured goods, in Christina's rigs unwrapping ancient Egypt, she fights the claim that linens were used only for the sake of preservation, and we totally agree. As Jordan confirmed, the primary preservation of dynastic mummies was not due to the use of linens, but actually because of the hot climates of the desert. Basically, the whole idea is that the use of linens around that time can be argued to have purposes other than just preservation. When the first bodies began to be treated with resin-soaked linens in pre-dynastic times, they were wrapped specifically around the hands and head. Let's remember that these examples predated the mummies from the first dynasties by as much as 3,000 years. 
so these partial wrappings are believed to be the first of their kind. In her book, Riggs also stresses that different wrapping techniques were existed throughout the history of Egypt, so the use of these textiles has not been static or continuous. But of course, this fact goes unknown and is not portrayed in modern literature or films. All we know are that fully wrapped mummies will curse whoever disturbed them. Hey everyone, thanks for sticking with us so far. I know we've been throwing around a lot of dates and vocabulary, but the one thing from this section we want you to remember is how ancient Egyptians perceived mummies. As we discuss, the burial of mummies portrayed their wealth and importance, while the process of mummification had practical and religious values. We should not neglect the goals of trying to understand the original purpose of these process of mummification. Speaking of linens, one of the primary reasons as to why they were not addressed was that the people who broke into ancient Egyptian tombs didn't care enough about the linens to preserve them. And why would they? One of the most fascinating and revolting cases of mummies in relation to the Western world was the case of mummy cannibalism. Now, people have been traveling to Egypt throughout its history. Traces of wares from foreign countries like Nubia, Yemen, and Libya were found in ancient Egypt. However, Egypt first began to truly open up itself for trade around the 12th dynasty, Middle Kingdom period, after which time acclaimed travelers like Herodotus and Acadius made their trips to Egypt and generated some of the few eyewitness accounts, or so they claimed, of the customs and culture of the ancient Egyptians during the 27th dynasty. During this entire time, tombs of royals and nobles were looted by both Egyptians themselves and by foreigners, in regards to a drive for looting, none was more revolting and inhumane than for the purpose of using the bodies of mummies for medicine. In medieval Europe, and peaking during the 16th and 17th centuries, first the noble Europeans and later the mass used mummy parts for cures to illnesses and pains. Mummy parts would be lined on the shelves of apothecaries, and the parts of mummies themselves would be ground up into tinctures to treat anything from internal injuries to headaches. Merchants looted Egyptian tombs in order to meet the high demand for the panacea. During the 18th century, though, the use of mummies for medical purposes died down, and again, Western looters of Egyptian tombs trampled the bodies for which the tombs were built without a care. However, that all changed when public dissection of mummies became a popular form of entertainment. Now, instead of being ground up into powder, mummies were sold as objects of science. People were willing to pay for the live display of scientists dissecting mummies, and whoever paid more would get a seat closer to a mummy, and some were willing to pay a lot. <laughs> this hideous part of European history remains hidden, along with the entire history of Westerners fetishizing Egypt. Speaking of which, did you know that the last line of rulers of Egypt were not Egyptian? They were in fact Macedonian Greeks from the line of Ptolemy I Soter, one of Alexander the Great's most well-known generals. And speaking of Alexander the Great, did you know that he was mummified after his death and that his mausoleum was in Egypt? Well, when Alexander the Great died, his general Ptolemy managed to secure Alexander's body had him mummified, and placed within a mausoleum inside the city of Alexandria. Celebrities from all over the ancient world came to Alexandria to pay their respects to their idol, with the hopes and dreams that they will be as great as Alexander the Great someday. You see, most admirers would just visit Alexander's mausoleum and with admiration and respect showing in their eyes, take off their cloaks and strip bare their jewelry, 
and lay them on Alexander Great's tomb to pay their respects to one of history's most glorified murder sorry conquerors. Um, but there was this one dude, this Roman emperor named Caracalla. I'm probably butchering his name. Who, according to Fritz, began to believe that he was actually the incarnation of Alexander the Great, and started parading all over the place, telling people to refer to him as Alexander. Gotta admit, though, this guy was pretty amusing. <laughs> that was what the people of Alexandria thought too before he massacred their youth and ordered his soldiers to loot and pillage the city. Anyway, after that, the tomb and corpse of Alexander the Great began to fade from documented history as Caracalla marks the last mention of the mausoleum of Alexander. Um, I went off on a tangent there, but you get the point. In the ancient world, the attitudes of foreigners and travelers toward ancient Egypt could have ranged anywhere from respecting and adopting Egypt's culture to not having a care about it and view cultural remnants of the ancient Egyptian world as nothing but lucrative commodities that have the potential to make millions or whatever number that screams rich in the ancient world. Or they could have just landed anywhere in between. The perception of mummies has undoubtedly changed over time. Mummies have excited considerable interest among all foreign visitors to Egypt. The earliest writings referring to them come from the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus, who provided detailed accounts describing mummies as manifestations of an ancient culture. Of course, there were claims that Herodotus had never even gone to Egypt and primarily based his knowledge off of what he had learned from previous travelers, like Hecatius himself. Hecatius was a predecessor of Herodotus, who, according to surviving fragments, made important contribution to ethnology, demography, and history. Herodotus might have simply come up with his own tale about the ancient Egyptian culture, misleading historians and archaeologists who relied heavily on the way Greeks saw Egyptians at the time. Yet again, nothing is definite. In his writings, Herodotus purposed to have talked to Egyptian priests extensively and all over Egypt, yet he retained the belief that in Egypt everything is backwards. Women buy and sell while men stay at home and take care of the children. Egyptians relieve themselves at home and eat in the streets. How could Herodotus travel the length of Egypt and talk to the most educated men all over the country and still go on talking like this without explaining himself? Unfortunately, we cannot simply go back in time in search of answers for our most unsettled questions. And as we all know, cultural misinterpretation can lead to inevitable consequences, especially if the country that misinterprets the culture holds some sort of authority in the world. But we will talk about this in a minute. Moving on to a more recent history, mummies were so popular in Europe in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance that they are frequently referred to in literature. Shakespeare's Apothecary in Romeo and Juliet stalks mommy, while in Othello, mommy was part of a magic potion. The earliest Western interest was not in the cultural value of the mummies, but rather in their medical feature, but that idea was forgotten by the end of the Renaissance era. The turning point of increased popular interest and investigation of ancient Egypt was Napoleon Bonaparte's invasion of Egypt in 1798. The emperor to be took with him a commission of historians and archaeologists to record all geographical and monumental findings. Almost all of the material collected was passed into the hands of the British and their museums. This fact might gross you guys out, but can you imagine that Napoleon commanded to detach respectively the heads from a male and female corpse and present it to his wife Josephine? That is just not the present one would hope to receive for a Valentine's Day nowadays. Other complete mummies collected during the expedition were taken to the Louvre. 
At the time, the French were collecting the corpses primarily as decorative objects, since the popularity of mummies was growing rapidly. As the 19th century progressed, Egypt opened up to more and more tourism and affluent visitors. This was also the beginning of Orientalism. Since the publication of Edward Said's Orientalism in 1978, much academic institutions have begun to use the term Orientalism to refer to a general condescending Western attitude towards Middle Eastern societies. In Said's analysis, the West characterizes these societies as static and undeveloped, forging a view of Oriental culture that can be studied and reproduced. Behind this terrible fabrication, writes Said, is the idea that Western society is rational and superior. Such representation of the Middle East expresses a will to sometimes control the perception of a given culture around the world by the West. The West has taken advantage of Egypt and its great possessions, including the mummies, crediting found materials to itself. Disrespect to cultural values and falsely made assumptions about Egypt and its civilians have led the majority to believe that the Egyptians are uneducated savages that cannot make use of the dynasty that was left to them. Well, that is just absurd. Instead of making accusations, it is more rational to try and get to know the culture through the eyes of the nation itself. Don't you guys agree? This way, one's knowledge will be less biased and will be based on actual facts. All these inaccurate beliefs gave birth to the famous Hollywood movies that we enjoy today. The Mummy Saga has turned the mummies into one of the greatest reflections of evil in film and around the world. Children dress up for Halloween as mummies to scare their neighbors and receive treats for it. Many who study Egyptian culture, and especially those who live in it, consider this behavior disrespectful. Ahmed El-Ghazar, who lives in Egypt, expresses his opinion on Quora and writes, As an Egyptian, I think Hollywood has no idea about Egypt and never did. Every representation of Egypt, modern, old, or ancient, in every American movie has been nothing short of pathetic, insulting, and stupid. They get everything wrong every single time. Media today plays a fundamental role in shaping our perceptions about the world. It is a very powerful weapon a dominant power can possess. Media stereotypes promote criticism of mummies, which can invalidate demands for their removal from display. Some examples include the Royal Cornwall Museum in Truro, that shows no images of human remains other than wrapped mummies online, and the Egypt Gallery at Bristol City Museum and Art Gallery, that displays a body curved into a fetal position in a dark case. Visitors have to press a button to reveal the body. Some mummies are displayed with their coffin lids half-closed. We have been told that mummies are scary and evil. We have been shown a lot of movies that promote unkind stereotypes, which further lead to a false understanding of how important it is to respect and study our past. Thank you, Diana. Those words carry over perfectly to our concluding segment. First, we would like to thank everyone that has made it this far into our podcast about mummies. The perception of mummies throughout time, whether through the eyes of ancient Egyptians, philosophers of the classical period, or the modern film industry has been the focus of this podcast. But let's not forget that the sources we use to study these perspectives may have biases that interfere with the truth. We hope that our podcast introduces or reinforces the importance of studying our past without letting our own biases cloud our judgment. Not only that, we should also check the biases of others as well. This work begins in our conversations with friends, in the classroom, or even with professionals. As Jordan said, be inquisitive, be judgmental, and always seek the truth. And we'd like to remind all of you that our colleagues have also created podcasts for your enjoyment, so please give them a listen. 
Special thanks to Robin Price, Courtney Jacobs, Simon Lee, Deidre Whitmore, Jordan Galzinski, and Tom Garbalotti. These are the amazing people that made all this happen. Thanks again.